Welcome back to From Start to Scale with Alex Newman, where founders, CEOs, sales leaders, investors, and the best of the best share their strategies and tactics, how they scaled their business and broke through the next level. Hear what worked and what didn't so you can avoid critical mistakes and scale your business. Now let's get into it. Today's guest is Tom Coburn, founder and CEO of Jebit. He's been building Jebit for 12 years, straight out of undergrad from Boston College. Got over 100 employees, 90 million raised, a bunch of customers that you've probably all heard of. He's done investing, he's done advising, but he's also created one of the best companies to work with in Boston. Tom, excited to have you on the show, welcome. Thanks for having me, Alex, excited to be here. I'm pumped for this one. Where I would love to start is, so you're in undergrad at Boston College, you start Jebit, Walk me through, like, what was the initial idea and just, like, how'd you get started all the way kind of through, like, moving and grooving to product market fit? So the ironic part is I got to Boston College for my freshman year in 2009, and I was 100% set on becoming a doctor, like my grandpa, who I always grew up watching be a doctor. And obviously that didn't happen. But at the start of freshman year, my roommates, who were all in the business school, told me about the business plan competition on campus where you could pitch an idea and win $10,000. And they roped me into being a part of that. I originally said, I'm not a business guy. I'm not one of those entrepreneurs who grew up like running the lemonade stand or the paper out in town. It was not on my radar. But I agreed that I would start a company with my friends for the business plan competition freshman year as long as it was a medical device company. So it could look good on my med school application. And so we tried that freshman year. We submitted a business plan. We didn't make it past the first round of the competition because nobody trusted a bunch of freshmen with no medical degrees to start a medical device company. They were probably right. But I've also learned about myself. I'm competitive. So once I had set the goal with them that we were going to win the competition, it's like, all right, we got to win the competition. So sophomore year, I said, all right, we'll come up with any idea we can that will win the competition. What's something more believable? And that's when we started exploring software ideas and ended up stumbling into this idea for Jebit, which is in the marketing tech space. Right. So give me, a, give us a, a brief kind of overview as far as what was the initial idea of Jebit and, and kind of how you actually started to go around testing that. So the very original idea, we ended up winning that business plan competition my sophomore year on this idea was to attach questions to video ads. So let's say you're watching a Hulu TV show and there's a 30 second ad before, and it would be a question that verified you paid attention to the ad. You know, you watch a car commercial, we say how many miles per gallon are in this car, and we would pay you as the consumer for getting the question right, and we would charge a premium to the advertiser that they only pay if you get the question right. So advertisers are used to paying for an ad just on an impression, on it playing, and most of us ignore video ads. So the idea was to make video advertising more rewarding for customers and more efficient for advertisers. We never launched that idea. We, we won the business plan competition with just a bunch of PowerPoint slides that mocked it up of how it would look. It's the beauty of a business plan competition. You don't have to actually be running the business. But the closest thing we ever came to that was about five months after the competition at the start of my junior year of college. We did launch a website that you could come log into as a college student and we would have you like watch ads and do things on our website and get paid money for brands there. So it never existed like throughout the web, but we, we were for two years until we shut that down. We were actually a consumer facing brand that about 100,000 college kids around the country used and they would yeah come log into our website when they were bored during class and earn 10 or 20 bucks to get their beer money for the weekend. <laughs> So, all right, now these are two businesses. So yeah. let's go through what is the third business that- What happens? Really, yeah, yeah what, what happens next? So I raised $2 million in funding and dropped out of college to pursue that business, the thing that paid college kids money to engage with brands on our website. And we ran into two problems with scaling it. One was we were a marketplace, so we had to both market to students and brands and try to have them somewhat balanced, and it was always lopsided. There were, for us at least, there were always way more students that wanted to earn money than there were brands we had convinced to advertise on it. But that problem I think we could have figured out. The bigger problem of why we shut that idea down was we just learned over time, after two years of running it, it was very incentivized marketing. The students were just there to get their beer money. They didn't care about the brands. and so. 
while we could deliver a bunch of really great high-level metrics to the brands, look how many people watched your video, downloaded your app, whatever it was. Like the, we weren't creating genuine connections between brands and consumers. And I just felt like, hey, if we're ever going to build this into a really big, sustainable company, like we have to feel good about the relationships we're connecting. And so I'll spare you all the ugly details because it took us about four years to pivot to the next thing and really get success, maybe three years. But where we ultimately landed was becoming a platform that brands could use behind the scenes. So we're a B2B software company, we sell to brands. And they can use our software to create all different types of interactive experiences without needing to touch a line of code. So if you ever use like a Canva or any system that just makes it really easy for people to grab a template and build stuff, we built that, but for these complex interactive experiences, like let's say I sell snowboards, I wanna build a quiz to find the right snowboard for you, where I can put it on my website and people can come in and they can answer five questions and then it will look at all my inventory and it will figure out based on these answers, show them this snowboard and maybe match this jacket to it and, and, and stuff like that. And that product around probably 2016 started to get a lot of traction where brands wanted to provide these more interactive guided selling experiences. And so you can see how it's loosely related to paying college kids to answer questions, but it was more of a, we'll be the software and then the brands put it in front of their customers rather than us having to bring the customers to the table. Well, it's interesting because the thing that, that, that is hooking is the, the quiz. Right? And still today you use the quiz and the interaction yep. of it, but it's interesting how you kind of drag the quiz piece throughout this entire, throughout the entire businesses, businesses being plural. How, how did you figure out like through that, through that two, three, four years of kind of pivoting to figuring out, hey, I'm going to make this for brands. How did you figure out that, that that was the thing that got traction? Not so much like, hey, I'm going to yeah. pivot to this idea, but like what were the hypotheses and the, and the process to go around testing it until you're like, wait a minute, we're starting to actually get some traction here. So the only things we knew when we shut down the college website, to your point on hypotheses, we knew we didn't want to be incentivizing people to take action. We didn't want to be giving them money or points or gift cards or sweepstakes because we just didn't believe that creates genuine connections between brand and consumers. And we knew that we didn't want to be responsible for bringing the consumer to the table as well. That was really all we knew. And we went and explored a bunch of bad ideas in hindsight. We, we tried to launch an ad network. We tried to launch all these other things. We, we kind of looked like an ad agency at one point. And then like, we eventually realized, no, we want to build a SaaS platform. We want to be a software company. We never really left the world of doing something for advertisers and marketers. I mean. You have crazy pivot stories like you know Slack going from becoming a video game to becoming a messaging platform. Like we never really evaluated something totally out of nowhere. We were always going around every day talking to marketers and trying to get meetings with marketers and trying to ask them about their problems. And that was just kind of one thing led to another and we eventually stumbled into this need to build these quizzes and other types of interactive experiences. But the ironic part is that like that didn't end up even then becoming the big value proposition. We, it took us two years of helping brands build these quizzes for their website to drive sales to realize, whoa, the real value prop is not that this quiz helped me sell 20% more snowboards. It's that every person that just did the quiz just answered five really valuable questions about who they snowboard with and how often they snowboard and what they like to do with snowboarding and how good they are at it. And that's incredibly valuable first party data. And so it was about 2018, we realized, whoa, our real value prop is in helping brands acquire first party self-declared data at a scale like they could never get before. It's interesting because one of the things that you said is, is you're just going out and you're talking to marketers constantly. Can you dig into that a little bit more as far as, I mean, this is over years. You've been talking yeah. about marketing and advertising yeah. from 2009 to 2016. So you're talking a pretty long period of time. You've talked to a ton of marketers in your life already. What what does that look like from that, you know, the, the year, two years leading up to it? Like, how did your process for hypothesis testing and learning change? Because it could have been very easy for you to be like, I don't really know what's going on. We've been talking to marketers for years. Like, we should be able to just come up with the idea. 
We never really felt that. I mean, I look back on the journey and I'm like, oh shit, that thing that took us two years, that probably could have taken us two months if we were smarter. Like there's some of that, that thinking, but we, I don't think we ever had the ego to think we had the answers. I think we were always like, the answer has to come from the customers. Like, and I don't know, maybe going through that experience of having to shut down the first business and just realize like, this isn't it. Maybe that was like a humbling pill for us of like, oh, this website we thought was gonna crush it. it has a lot of problems with it. But to answer your question of our process, I mean, there were me and a couple of my co-founders and maybe one or two sales folks and like, we would just go out every week and try to book as many meetings as we could. And then we'd have these end of week sessions where like whatever, Friday, four or 5 p.m., we'd grab some beers and sit around a whiteboard and everyone would just share their notes of what they heard that week. And it's like, oh, I heard that same thing. And oh, you heard that in three different meetings this week. And you know, just kind of one pivot led to another, led to another. And clearly it was like a long and grueling process. It wasn't like, I mean, it took us years to eventually land on, I mean, it's an exciting place to be in now where it's 2023 and I've finally been pitching the exact same company vision for five years, like since 2018, you know, it's been the same vision, the same future we're planning, but felt like from 2011 to 2018, it was like, uh, I had to rewrite the mission every January of what we were all about and what we were doing, so. That's, that's interesting. So. When when you're doing this, how big is Jebit at that time? In like those years we were figuring it out, yeah. we're, we're, we probably kept the company from eight to 12 people from okay. 2014 to 2016 or 17, something like that. Yeah, so yeah. You're, you got a pretty, you're, you're making a pretty low burn. You're able Correct. to kind of drag through the VC money that you've had and you've been able yeah. to kind of say, hey, Let's not let's not just build product and see what sticks. Let's not yeah. do it. Your your focus was just let's go talk to the customer. We want to build for the marketer. So you Correct. had kind of an ideal customer in mind. You wanted to figure out their pain points. Yep. And then are are you talking to all different sizes of companies, B2B companies, B2C companies, product, software, you know, yeah. enterprise companies like how did you kind of dial it in to the point where, you know, quote unquote, getting lucky. So the ironic part is we did whale hunt the biggest B2C companies in the world. Like we were like, we want to just talk to the NFL and Pepsi and Toyota and, you know, all brands like that. So yeah, we didn't focus on SMB and we didn't focus on B2B. Yeah, we just went for, we went for all those big brands. You see on Super Bowl commercials and yeah maybe that's where our ego was just like hey if we're gonna do this we want to do it for the the biggest and coolest brands in the world yeah well at least you know you can charge a lot and they can afford it right fair enough yeah yeah so all right so you how did you know that you actually hit something when because in, in this in this next pivot you're talking about creating kind of interactive ads, really focusing on conversion to be able to, with the messaging around yeah. increasing conversion rates, make more money. You're not, you're not at the data piece yet. How did you know that it was starting to work? Like what were your signals? Did you have measurements in place or yeah. processes? So it was 2017. We had a lot of companies that were using us for a quiz for their website, or maybe multiple quizzes on their website. You might have a beauty brand that has a lipstick finder and a lip gloss finder and a foundation finder and all these different things throughout their website and you know most of them were probably spending 30 to 60 thousand dollars a year for the platform something like that and the metrics they cared about were how much did you increase my conversion rate and my average order value right it was a very like e-commerce performance driven thing and my co-founder went out and got connected to the cmo of this fortune 500 brand and he decided to take a different approach to the pitch and instead of talking about quizzes for her website that would drive more sales, he told her about how we could help her capture this first party declare data at scale. And he's painted the vision for her of if we go run a bunch of different pieces of content and if we go get you, you know, a hundred million first party data points, imagine what you could do with that for your personalization engine. And she signed a $1.3 million contract and that was like a, oh, we can close contracts that are 20 times the size of what we're closing when we're just talking about, you know, quizzes and driving more sales. 
when you get to the higher levels of marketing and you get them to understand the value of the data, not just the in-the-moment quiz, but like I was saying earlier with the snowboarding example, what if you now have those five things about Tom in your database and you can use it for all your future marketing to Tom? And that was our big aha moment. That's how we then raised our Series A and Series B and eventually our C round last year. But yeah, give my co-founder credit. It all started with him just like going out and giving the bigger pitch. There you go. So I want I want to go come back to this, but I want to get to the to the first part because you you're starting with these conversions and saying, hey, we we figured out if you use this, you can you can increase your conversion rate, you can drive more revenue. You're talking anywhere between thirty to sixty thousand. How how were you initially getting the what what was your go to market there? Is this just like an outbound email strategy to you know a bunch of marketers? I mean, are you throwing out ads? Like how how are you how'd you get that in order to get to that? Yeah, it was a lot of outbounding. I mean, there wasn't a huge marketing engine or like inbound interest in what we were doing at the time. My co that same co-founder, he, he did really creative things like because we were all 23, 24, 25 years old, something like that, trying to get meetings with CMOs of these Fortune 500 brands. So he created a CMO advisory board where he specifically found on LinkedIn like recent CMOs of Fortune 500 brands that had just retired in the last year or two and we gave them equity, brought them on. Obviously, they like got to know us and they believed in the platform, but they would walk us in the door to their friends that were still in CMO roles. And that combination, I think, of going into the room with the like, you know, person with the experience and the gray hairs that like these other CMOs have known for 5, 10, 20 years and have that endorsement coupled with us being like, the young, hungry entrepreneurs who were building the tech and would give them all these creative ideas and things like that. That's how we landed most of our initial big brands. And then it just obviously creates the flywheel when you can go in the room and say, hey, look at XYZ brand who's using us on a global scale. And you can show that to other similar brands. Then, then it just starts to build the reputation and the momentum. It's a great strategy. I mean, instead of, I mean, I, I would imagine that just a, a cold email to a CMO to try to, you know, the old school, like, maybe not old school, but the SDR to AE, like outbound yeah. sales approach without all the social proof when you guys are, you know, a tiny little startup, that could be real challenging. Yeah. So you're like, when, hey, let's go through the front door and, and, and walk in with a handshake. Yes, when you're 24 years old, don't even have a college degree, your company's raised three million in funding and no one's ever heard of you. That's not the email, that's not the cold email that the CMO is gonna respond to. Events worked well for us too. We'd just go like hustle at events. We normally wouldn't even buy the pass for the event because we didn't want to spend the $3,500, but we would just like go sit at the Starbucks next to the event and just try to talk to people. Like just did a lot of those scrappy startup things that plenty of other startups do. Yeah, no, it, it's interesting. How long did it take? I mean, you come up with this idea to be able to talk to these kind of retired CMOs. I would imagine that it's somewhat similar to kind of convince them or to talk to them to be like, hey, this is the idea. Was it like, did you go in, if anybody ever wanted to try to replicate this in some form or fashion, are you going and you're saying, hey, this is our vision, do you buy in? Are you saying, hey, we would like you on our advisory board? Would you be open to talking to us? Like, how, how did you even get that thing kicked off and going? So for them, that was cold outreach on LinkedIn. And that was, yeah, we reached out about the advisory board. Said, hey, we're this small company in Boston. We've raised a couple million in funding. You know, a quick one line about what the product or vision of the company is about. And we're creating the CMO advisory board. I mean, similar thing too. Once we got like three big CMOs on it, we just said, who's on it already? But even to get the first three, it was that and then you know i think the unique the unique unlock and understanding i have now that i didn't fully realize then is like these were high-powered executives that had been really busy that now had time on their hands that a were more likely to respond to a cold linkedin b didn't have 200 sdrs and bdrs or aes at all these other software companies reached out to them anymore because they're not at the company anymore they're no longer the cmo of mazda or whatever it is but so they like were looking for something that would be intellectually stimulating and they were more willing to take the time to really vet and learn and understand a new tech because I think it was just fun for them. And if you're 
in that active seat where you are the CMO and you have to report to the board or the CEO or whatever, like you don't have the time to slow down and like really hear out some pitch from, you know, group of young entrepreneurs that aren't validated yet. And so, yeah, it was, it worked. And in hindsight, it was a really good tactic we deployed. Yeah, it seems like one of those inflection points that kind of catapulted and, and, and really gave your business a lot of credibility. And yep. so while you're doing this, while you're reaching out to these people, what at what point, like what size did you get to? Was this like, hey, I had three or four of these people or was it like I had 20 or 30 people that were on that? on that yeah. advisory board over the maybe like three or four years where this was a big part of our strategy we, we probably pushed close to 20 people maybe 15 to 20 that became a cmo advisor at some point we kind of learned these things would last like 12 to 18 months you know like you you kind of meet everybody in someone's network and then you know it's not like they open up their whole rolodex in the first three months they they pick a couple of people they're friendly with. You, it takes a while to get on that person's calendar because they're the CMO of a big brand. You go meet, you run a sales cycle for a couple months. But yeah, by the time we'd hit 12 or 18 months with most of them, it was kind of like, all right, we've met most of your network. And But at any one point in time, it was probably like four or five we were actively working with, if I had to guess. And so while this is all happening, and this is was this run by kind of you and the, and the co-founder? Me and my co-founder, yeah. So while that's happening, what's the rest of the company doing? Do you have a sales team? Do you have a marketing team? Are they trying to go get go get business in the, in the you know the old school way? Yes, to a marketing team. Obviously, a lot of them were like product and engineering people, you know, building whatever we were thinking we should build next. And then, I mean, there were a couple salespeople that were outbounding, but we we didn't build a big sales org. I mean, when we we just raised a $70 million round in January of 2022, so about a year ago. We only had four AEs when we raised that round. Like, I think it's probably a unique story from just a lot of other companies I see raising, but like, we never, we never built that massive sales team. I mean, we're doing it now, but before, but before then, it was a lot of founder sales or just like people that had been there. And like, and we tried at times, like there were times we tried to build it up, but it never, it never like really took off in those earlier years. Yeah. So the, these two salespeople, are they, is it just kind of, hey, do you go do your own thing, see what you guys can find? I mean, do you have quotas and things like that? I yeah. Mean, do you have a sales manager that you're like yeah. pretty strict or is it like, are they kind of going to learn and, you know, we, we need these people to kind of do stuff as, as we kind of find it. Did we have quotas? Yes. But you can go talk to a couple of the people that are still with us who joined us eight years ago and you can ask them how close did they get to their OTE in the first year or two that they joined. And I mean, look, we, we weren't, we were just naive. I mean, we'd tell someone, Hey, come, come take this job, you know, get a hundred thousand dollar salary with a $200,000 OTE. And I mean, they probably made $110,000. Like, I mean, we just, our goals were so big. We had no idea. It was so hard to sell the product at that point in time. So, you know, I'm really grateful to those people that stuck it out and stuck with the company through that because they easily could have been like, you guys are crazy. There's no way. And some people did leave, obviously. But uh, there's a couple that they grinded through those hard years and are, you know, running teams and doing that stuff now. But yeah, I mean, we followed all the things that you read about in the blogs and hear about on podcasts like yours you're supposed to do, like, you know, set quotas and assign target accounts and all those things. But like, if you don't have product market fit yet and you haven't figured out how to actually sell, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't matter. All right, so I want to get into into the next part of this, but you've been doing this for now seven-ish years. And you're fighting tooth and nail, gritty as can be. Right now, there's a whole talk around mental health and making sure that you eat right and sleep and all these different types of things. Are you? Do you? Have you been doing anything throughout the time to keep your mind right, stay motivated, stay hungry? Like, what? What's the thing that kind of kept has kept you going to keep figuring out? Like, Hey, we can do this. Like, we just, yeah. we just gotta keep going. Because a lot of people, after yeah. seven years, would be like, you know what? I need to go make some money. Like, I'm gonna go to yeah. a big company and make a big check. 
All right, you asked a dangerous question because I'm very passionate about this. So you're going to have to stop my rambling now and tell me right. when you want to move on to another topic. Every day, 10 minutes, every morning, outside in nature. Like I always try to go, well, when I can, like if you're in a city, it's harder. But like I'm, I'm in LA today for a business trip and I ran down to the beach and meditated on the beach. So meditation's been huge for me. Exercise and time in nature, like I have a rule for myself when I am back home, I play basketball twice a week and never miss it. Like, I've missed maybe a handful if there's like a board dinner or something like that, but like I don't miss it for just the like, oh, I have a lot of work tonight and a lot of emails to respond to. So like staying disciplined on that was really big. I still run the company with a bunch of my friends from college, like that goes a long way. I just like having people you love and you're friends with outside of work. And then the last thing I'll say is, Probably well, the hardest one, but also maybe the most powerful one is like not tying your self-worth up in the success of the company. And it's really hard to do, obviously, like if you pour so many hours a week into something and you're competitive, you feel amazing when you're raising money and the big deals are coming in and good press releases are going out and you feel like crap when all the opposite stuff is happening. But just like really, and I did a lot of this through meditation and through journaling, but like just really processing like, my value as a human isn't in how much money the company's making or how well we're doing in both sides, both in not getting too down, of course, in the down, which is where people's minds go probably first when I say that, but also not getting too high in the highs because like it, bad stuff can come from that as well. So I don't know. Those are my no, first that, that, that's that's awesome. I mean, I, I the, the thing that really caught me, and I agree, I mean, you hear about meditating and journaling, and, and I 100% am on board with that, but one thing that is, you get to do this with your best friend, and you get totally. to support each other. Yep. And when you when you kind of do stuff with your friends, is it work, or is it just like, hey, we're gonna hang out, and we're gonna do something. We might as well try to totally. build a fun business, or whatever it is, so that 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 really, went, that one resonated a lot. That, one, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, right, I found out. I have a very, sorry, I told you you're yeah, going to have to cut me in. off. I'll, yeah, share one, I'll share one more thing. Yeah. It's, it's weird for me because this is all I've ever done. I mean, we were talking about this before we started filming. Like, I'm the only, this is the only job I've ever had. But I do remember one time I went out with my co-founders and one of my high school friends came and hung out with us. And, like, we had this, like, three-hour dinner and we left. And one of the comments they said to me is they were so astonished how over the course of the three hours we would weave in and out of work topics. And I wasn't even aware of it, right? Because I was like, oh, I'm just out with my friends. What are you talking about? Like, you know, one minute we're talking about a deal we just lost or some issue at work. And the next minute we're talking about whatever, the Celtics game or whatever thing happened. And yeah, this friend was just like, I'd never seen a conversation like that. Like, I go out with my friends and we actively don't talk about work. Or I go out with my work friends and like, whatever, we don't talk about work. But so anyways, like that's just, I feel really lucky that that's just been my life, that I work with people that I love and, and consider to be close friends. And it's just, there's, there's not really clear lines between it. That's awesome. I think that's I think that's a like, that's just great advice for anybody who's starting a company. I mean, I know for from my own experience, I've started companies with really good friends, and I've started companies with people who, you know, it's more like work relationships or hey, I thought you, you know you have these skills, and the dynamics are completely different. And when it gets tough, and it it always gets tough for a variety of reasons and at different points. You know, the the co-founding team is really one of those teams that you can really leverage. So that's awesome. You guys are you guys are very lucky to have each other. It's I think it's a lot of a lot of what people aspire to want. Yeah, and I disagree with the advice of I mean obviously I'm biased, but there's tons of advice of don't start companies with friends. I couldn't disagree more. I'm like most companies take seven, ten, fifteen years to really achieve their potential and you're gonna pour so many hours in, you're gonna go through so many hard times. Why would you not wanna do that with your friends? Now don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to paint like a only rosy picture. I've had to fire good friends. I've had good friends leave because they decided this isn't for them anymore. Whether they're burnt out or they just want to pursue something else. And like those things hurt and they're hard. But like I think I'd always said like from day one, our friendship is more important than the business anyways. And I think they all feel the same way. And like it's so there's been tough times with it for sure. But like if I was starting another company tomorrow, no doubt in my mind, I started with friends again. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right, let's jump in.
I'll jump back right. into the story. Sounds good. Sorry to derail us. Yeah, this is you asked you asked the question really to be fair. Topic. So. I think it's a really yeah. important topic, and I don't think it's talked about enough in detail. I think there's you know totally. you have a couple of listicles or something on Twitter, yeah. but it doesn't actually dig into the details. So it's wonderful to hear. So let's talk a little bit about you're pivoting kind of one more time. So you're figuring out, hey, we have this product. It is you know helping with conversion rates, it's increasing revenue, and then your co-founder takes a shot in the dark and says, hey, what do you think about all this data? And all of a sudden, like, what did it look like from that very first conversation to that actual million dollar contract? Is that pretty quick? Was that six months and 12 months, mm -hmm. like a typical enterprise sale or like, how, where, where did it go from there? No, it was like, I want to say it was like three months. It was pretty fast. I, th oh. I think we did. I think we did a pilot first. Actually, I don't think it went from meeting right to like a one point three million dollar contract. I think we like did a pilot. Maybe that was like fifty grand, and then it was like, all right. The CMO said, we got to scale this. Every one of our brands and departments has got to go capture this data, and then it just, yeah, got big. And it was to prove it, prove, prove that you can do what you said you can do in this little pilot. Exactly. That makes yeah. sense. So that happens while you get your co-founder gets out of that conversation. What happens next? Are you are you still kind of business as usual on the conversion in the in the you know the the revenue product, or are yeah. you? You're like, wait a minute, we might have hit something even different here. Let's go talk, talk to every other CMO or talk to our current customers. Like, what was your plan of action afterwards? This is where we made a lot of mistakes. So this will be a fun part of the conversation. So, well, the first thing I did was I went to investors and I said, look what we just did. All I got to do is go get nine more of these. And we're like a $15 million a year company revenue wise, whatever it is. And I pretty quickly raised, I think it was like a five or $6 million series A, which for us, I'd been like loosely talking to investors for years. So to watch it together, watch it, to watch it come together so quickly, it's like, oh, this is validating. Like, I guess that's what happens when you close a $1.3 million contract. And then we took our very small and relatively junior sales team. I mean, we were, I was probably what, I was like 26 at the time. So, and most of our sales reps were like 23, 24. And we told all of them, stop selling the quizzes for 30 grand. Your new job is to whale hunt Fortune 500 CMOs and don't even talk to someone if it's less than 250 grand because our new goal is to go get nine more million dollar contracts so we have 10 million dollar customers. It actually kind of worked for like a year. We didn't actually, we didn't actually close another million dollar deal that year, which was interesting. But we closed a couple like three, four, five hundred thousand dollar deals and a year later we raised our 12 million dollar series b off of that but Wait, really let me get this straight so yeah. you close you go and you take a shot in the dark with from your co-founder and you close a million dollar plus deal yep and you go and you raise five million dollar series a off of one deal well, we had a real business outside of that, but that was the catalyst that but got that was them the over that, the hump. That, Correct. And yeah. then you sell three, four, five-ish, 300 to 500, 600K deals, and then you can go raise a $12 million A. No, we, we sold like 12 to 15 deals okay. at that phase. And to be fair, like despite us putting this line in the sand of like quarter million dollars or not, like our sales reps still did close $30,000 quiz deals. Like that's what we told them to do, but you know, it's a tall ask to, in hindsight. That's a tall ask to ask a 24 year old sales rep who like either joined us right out of college or like maybe had a year at Oracle to learn sales. I'd be like, go pitch those Fortune 500 CMOs on this huge deal. We, that was an area where we just underestimated the value of a founder sale. Like as a founder, you can get into rooms and obviously as founders, we'd been like living and breathing the marketing world for years and like, it was just a tall ask to ask these sales reps to do. But yeah, we, we closed like 12 to 15 bigger deals, used that money to raise the big round. And then it all kind of came crashing down for us because what we realized was the top down approach wasn't working. At the end of 2019, we churned a bunch of these deals we were closing. And when I say a bunch, like 
like half. It was not, it was not good. Our, our Series B investors were not happy. And the learning was we had gotten so focused on the ultimate vision of capturing the data that we had kind of lost sight of building the bottoms up like selling to that marketer who just needs the quiz for the site to drive sales and then going up to the CMO. And these CMOs were signing these contracts and pushing it down. And the lower level people on the team like weren't the ones bought in. Like they weren't the one, like, you know, now there's this whole motion of PLG, product led growth. And there's all these C-level execs that just kind of let their team go like use free software and try it. And then be like, this software is amazing. I love it, we've got to use it. And we had just like lost sight of our end user. And so you had these CMOs that'd be like, hey, I bought into the vision, but my team's not using the software. So like, what do you want me to do? I'm not gonna keep paying for this. And so it was really tough. At the end of 2019, we had to do layoffs, which was like the worst day of my 12 years of running this. And we lay, for the record, we laid off like a third of the company. I wanna say we went from like 45 people down to 30 or something like that. And uh, we sat the team down and I just, my co-founder and I told them, hey, Look, these were all the mistakes we made. We, we still are fully bought in on the ultimate vision of helping brands capture this first party data. But instead what we need to do is we're actually gonna roll out a free version. At the time we didn't have a free version. We're gonna make the platform available to anyone and whether they find it on their own or whether you're in a sales pitch, like just let them into the product, give them a sandbox account and you don't have to target CMOs anymore and you can just see the huge sigh of relief from the sales team. Like, just go find the director of e-commerce, go find the CRM director, go find the social media coordinator and just show them the software and show them how easy it is to build a quiz and you know, sign that 30 or $50,000 contract and we'll grow it over time. You know? And we implemented a product led you know, land and expand model and uh, that's been what we've been running since Jan 1, 2020. And companies had the biggest growth we've ever had. We, I think I said it earlier, we raised the $70 million last year from Vista, which was obviously a, you know, validating moment for the new strategy we had deployed. And, you know, just, so just learned the hard way, right? It was the, the vision was there, but the go-to-market strategy and the sales motion and all of that was not the right one. Yeah, it is. So th this hasn't been coined enough because I came up with it, but I, <laughs> I call it, I call it the sandwich approach. It's the yeah. bottoms up and the top down and then you sandwich them together is essentially you're pushing it out to all of the users mm -hmm. because it, when you when you go top down they're like man if i just said hey you guys are all going to use this software they're going to be like nah no thanks but if totally. you all of a sudden say hey so and so cmo i got 30 of your people who love this and this is how they use it and this is what it says and so on and so forth do you want to get the analytics or what you know whatever it is and buy yeah. the bigger package and then you sandwich it together and that's how you have like true you know value because the people who are using it and the decision maker are being able to see it's helping all the different parties so it makes it makes sense on how you missed but it you know obviously you, you were able to catch up fast enough a hundred percent and we have we have customers yeah. now that from a single we have some brands that have over 200 people a month in our platform from just that company. Like some of these big brands that have tens of thousands of employees building content. So to your point, when you can then go to a CMO and say, look, you got 75 people at your company that use our platform every month and they've launched 350 different Jebit experiences this year and you've had whatever, 200 million questions answered, which is valuable data for you. Like to your point, it's a, wildly different conversation we can have with that CMO now than that first big conversation my co-founder had with our CM with that first CMO we closed the deal with in, in 2017. What, what is that what does that user go to market look like when you when you're telling your sales people to say hey go after directors go after marketing managers e-commerce people is it just a, you know an email in saying hey check this out like I thought you'd like it free like what what is the What's the thing that seems to be working from kind of that bottoms up approach? Yeah, so the large majority of our enterprise brands don't start on the free version now. It was interesting to learn, like, because they meet us and they want the, all the features that come with the paid plan. And But we'll give them a sandbox account where they can log in and play around with it and try it all. But we do have a free version now that a lot of, like, 
SMBs use, a lot of like Shopify brands and, and things like that. So that was a new muscle for us to build in the last two years. But to directly answer your question, what works best is normally just a simple email to a brand where we just link to them the quizzes that their competitors have built on Jebit. We're just like, hey, go to, go to your competitor's website. You see that quiz there? Like, that was built on our platform. Do you want to chat? Do you want me to show you the platform? And that, that is what works best. Fear of missing out. I like it. Works every time. We've, trust me, we've tested a million strategies and human nature is that's what works best. And obviously if we're allowed to share metrics from that customer of what it did to increase their conversion rate or things like that, I mean, that helps even more if you can validate that. But you know, normally it's enough to, normally it's enough to at least get them on the phone when they see like, okay, yeah, wow, if my competitor is doing that, I should, I should talk to Jebit about this and at least learn more. So let's talk a little bit about the transition out of founder-led sales and into more of this scalable sales team. So, I mean, you didn't have a huge sales team when you raised the Vista money, but you had a sales team and you didn't have every deal being founder-led sales. That was obviously a key insight that you found Walk me through a little bit about how you made the transition. Like, what were the things that you did to be like, wait a minute, we got to get other people other than myself and my co-founders to be able to sell this thing? Yeah, so by the time we closed the round with Vista, most of the sales were not coming from the founders. So even though I said it was a small team, like we had pretty well transitioned off of me and my co-founder having to be involved in, in closing a lot of the deals. And those four people were people that had just been with us for years and honestly just like learned through osmosis of like joining calls with us and and also their own just trial and error of you know these were smart gritty people that were like i'm gonna figure this out i'm committed to figuring out how to sell jebit again they were with us in the early years where nobody could figure out how to sell jebit but uh, you know to directly answer your question there was none of the things that now exist today there was no Jebit sales bootcamp. There was no Jebit sales playbook. There was no coaching. It was just yeah. go figure it out. And no, there's no yeah. Alex Newman sales coach in like, hey, this is how yeah, you're all like your up. your training was go join calls with me or my co-founder, and then eventually it's like, you want to run this call? All right, why don't you run this one? Oh, you fell on your face. Like, here's some advice. Like, go run the next one. And like, you know, it was just that. So it's more of a, the, whoever lasted the longest was able to just kind of power through. Would, what, what do you equate that to as far as people who've just kind of stuck it out with you? Because that, you know, that's a culture thing, that's a leadership thing from you yeah. and your co-founders, that's a continuing to believe in the vision. I mean, people don't just stick around because they want to stick around. And then all of a sudden you see this like giant kind of you know, lift that all of a sudden yeah. happens. There's, that's a lot of lull and then pop of energy that needs to happen. I think the similar qualities in them was competitiveness, grit, loyalty, just like those people that like you tell them they can't figure something out and they're like, I'm going to figure this out. And, and yes, I'm sure if you talk to them, it was, you know, we love the team at Jebit and we believed in the vision and we like the culture and all of that stuff. But... Um, yeah, I mean, the credit goes to them that they kept grinding and kept sticking it out and eventually figured it out. And I'll never forget the moment I joined a pitch with one of them, this woman who was closing a beauty brand. And she had just like asked me to be there because they were bringing in a senior person. And it was like, hey, if, if anything goes wrong or even just for me to, you know, be there and learn. And, and she finished the pitch and I was like, I think you just did that better than I would do it. Like. Like I have no, you know, she turned to me and she was like, any feedback of what I can do better? And I was like, that was amazing. You crushed that. And that was my first moment of being like, wow, like maybe I'm not the best at pitching Jebit anymore, which, you know, me and my co-founder always had a lot of confidence that we were the best at doing this. So Sure. It's got to be a nice feeling too, knowing that it was, it was awesome. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit about the transition next. So you, so this is kind of a series A, series B, you've raised some money, you're starting to figure this out. You figured out kind of this, this PLG moment from our movements from like kind of this bottoms up and top down approach. And then you like, what, what does kind of scale look like for you? So like what, what does the next couple of hires, you know, the people who haven't been with you for the, this entire time, 
you're adding new people to the team, onboarding, salespeople. Like, how, how do you how do you put that all together? All the standard hires that I think most scalable B two B SaaS companies look like: CRO, VP of Sales, Sales Enablement Manager, BDR Manager. Like, yeah, we've in the last year we've added a ton of people. We've put a lot of structure in place. We've put a lot more process in place. Everything from the boot camp when you start of learning how to sell Jebit to the playbook of everything you should do to the, and resources to we do a quarterly sales training now where we all get together for two days in person because our team's remote and all around the country. Obviously a ton more like rigor on Salesforce. I mean, you know, my biggest learning for the last from the last year is you know when you go from four reps to 20 reps pretty quickly and I'm trying to, me and my CRO are trying to have you know, predictability on a quarter with two weeks left or a month left. Like, I'm gonna, by the way, I'm gonna say something that's very obvious to any sales leader out there who's done it, but this was my learning for the last year. It's like, I used to be able to just pick up the phone with two weeks left in the quarter, call those four sales reps and be like, hey, what's gonna happen? And they tell me, hey, these five deals locked, they're gonna close. These three, maybe, these five, 30% chance I'm gonna I'm gonna go for it, everything else don't worry about. And like they'd be 95% accurate because we'd been working together for years and they trusted me, I trusted them. And boy does that break down when you just hire a ton of new people and you don't have consistency and what's at what stage in the process and also you just can't pick up the phone and call 20 people. So long story short, what I'm getting at is just you have to run everything through Salesforce, you have to run everything through dashboards, you have to have rigor on what does it mean for a qualified opportunity? What does it mean for an opportunity to be in negotiation and have things in place to hold people accountable? And again, for any like scalable B2B CRO, they're like, yeah, no kidding. Because <laughs> they've all learned that, but that's, that's what I've learned in the last year. And I learned it the way I've learned most things, which is just from failing and going through the experience. What what was your what were your first couple hires? Because you talked about a CRO, you talked about a VP of sales, you talked about sales enablement. I mean that that transition. I mean, are you building the team? When you raised your your Vista money, you had still a pretty small sales team. You also had marketing, you had operations, so you still had some movement. I mean, it, I know that there was like some some manualness to the reporting and all that kind of stuff, but like yeah. What, what, what was like the next kind of lift after that to be able to say, all right, we need to kind of make this a little bit more of a, a, a formal sales process, a, an organization, a little bit more structured? Like what, what were the first couple of hires that you made? So the CRO actually we hired when we were doing right, right around when we were doing the layoffs in 2019 and implementing the new strategy. So that was actually a well before Vista and he was a core part of all the changes we were making in the new go-to-market strategy and all of that. The, but to answer your question of a lot of the post Vista stuff, that was like VPs to have underneath him. Cause I mean, you know, you're going to go grow the sales team a ton. So you're going to have to have more managers. We hired the BDR manager so that we could have one person just dedicated to the seven or eight BDRs that we hired. Sales enablement, we waited way too late on. We waited like six months after the Vista round and that's something we should have just prioritized immediately. That should have been one of the first hires we made. But I was more stuck in the old days of, no, people will learn from just following the people that know how to sell around and that, that it's not a good strategy for scale. I mean, I'm obviously giving you all the answers like within sales. There were tons of hires outside of sales if you want to talk about those, but yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I would say that's probably one of the more common ones I hear the most is should have hired sales and enablement a heck of a lot, a lot faster. Totally. Because when you're putting yeah. in your managers and you're putting in your, you know, your VPs, you don't want them setting up, you know, content and process here and doing yeah. that. You want them coaching, you want them helping sell, you want them recruiting, you want them, you know, one-on-ones, that type of thing. So you need the support around sales to be able to do it. So it's interesting that well, you say that. And it's, you're not, you're not alone. It's also interesting when you hire external VPs or directors to lead new sales hires, but those people haven't learned how to sell Jebit yet either, right? Like they know how to be a sales manager, they know how to sell software in general, but they haven't learned yet how to sell Jebit. So they're both trying to learn how to sell Jebit and the uniqueness of that, whatever nuances we have, while also learning 
or while also managing and teaching others. And so, you know, I think that's a really interesting debate. It's like, when do you bring in external sales leaders that have more experience managing but don't have as much experience selling your product versus when do you promote the younger up-and-comers, like those four people that have been with us that have proven they know how to sell but don't know how to manage yet because they've never been a manager. And maybe if we do another one of these podcasts in three years, I'll give you my answer to that. But that's like an interesting thing that we're, we have, if you, if you come to our sales meetings today, we have both. We have sales directors that were young and came up through Jebit and are now managing for the first time, but they know everything about selling Jebit and they're experts at selling Jebit. And then we have more senior people we've brought in externally that know how to manage. And I've done it at multiple companies, but are going through Jebit Bootcamp when they join and all of that stuff. So yeah, I don't have an answer yet. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. It's interesting because, so you had a CRO pretty early on and yeah. So did you hire the CRO based on the conversion and the revenue play? And then like before that sec, that last pivot? No, the CRO was in 29, end of 2019 when we'd been selling the data vision. Yeah. Okay. And so is that person, is that person playing player coach or is that person mainly a coach? Like, are they actually a true CRO and they're, you know, they're setting things up or are they actually yeah. selling too? Because you're still pretty, pretty small. Player coach. Yeah. yeah. Player coach. I mean, you yeah. can't be a big, you can't be a big scalable just in the cloud CRO and there's only four sales reps. <laughs> so very much player coach. Yeah. And give him credit. Like we, I, we actually weren't try, now that I think about it, I don't think we were trying to hire a CRO. I think we were just trying to hire a VP of sales, but we met this guy that had been a multi-time CRO and had a lot of successful exits under his belt and like give him credit, he was willing to roll up his sleeves and go to a company that was way earlier than probably he or anyone in his network thought he was gonna go to, but yeah. obviously there was something about us that he saw and probably a combo of, well, no, I know him and I have talked about it. It was a combo of the product opportunity, the product market fit opportunity and just us and the culture that he was bought into. And yeah, give him credit, he rolled up his sleeves and joined really early and you know, helped us get to where we are now. That's awesome. What a story. And it's just, just beginning. It's really just beginning. Uh, kind of. It's, it's been 12 years. <laughs> it's not just beginning, but yes, we are, we're in an exciting point where brands are finally really waking up to the need to get their own first party data with you know there's a lot of privacy changes happening and google's getting rid of third-party cookies and apple changed their idfa tracking which has really hurt a lot of advertisers so in many ways i know i joked it's been 12 years but it probably sounds cliche but in many ways it does feel like it's whatever the second inning and we're just starting to live in a world where brands really prioritize like having conversations directly with their customers, getting their own data, first party data, all of that. So that makes sense. That's awesome. When you uh, when you look back and I and I'm gonna force you to pick two. Deal. Looking back, is there two things that you would really hone in on as far as you would do differently? I know we well, so there's the obvious one to start. I wouldn't have gone after the whale hunting CMOs. I would have focused on a more product led vision back in twenty seventeen when we raised the Series A. But before that, we didn't get into this as much because we mostly talked about how much time we were spending with marketers. But when I said that there were some things that took us way longer to figure out that could have been shorter, I think the biggest mistake my co-founder and I made is that we were like 50-50 spending our time with marketers and spending our time with VCs and investors. And I would do it like 90-10. I would do 90% of our time with marketers and maybe 10% of our time with investors because we just wasted a lot of time talking to VCs and VCs had these like big crazy visions of what if you built this and what if you used AI and machine learning to do that and all these things and they were like amazing visions but they didn't help us actually figure out what marketers were ready to buy today. And I do think we gave too much of our brain power to trying to chase what VCs would want where at the end of the day, if you just nail something your customer wants, in our case, marketers, VCs like a business that's 
booking a lot of deals and retaining revenue at a high rate and all of those things. So, you know, we were first time founders and I think a lot of founders get enamored with it. The, you know, raising money and flying to San Francisco to pitch investors and all of that stuff. And again, I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying, I think we, we spent too much time doing it. No, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think especially when I, when I was a first time founder, it, it is, you know, you see these you see these investors. They have the ability to write these big checks. Often, they have huge resumes that have big companies on them, and you think, hey, they got this great idea. I should go chase after that because if I do, then they'll give me money. And that's not actually the case in, in, in most of the time. And sticking true to uh, your vision, your thought, your process to be like, this is our customer. It's figured out, and you continue to tweak. And as soon as you hit something. They're like, can I give you some money? <laughs> well, that's the thing you said earlier. Like, once we close a million dollar deal, then the investor's like, all right, let's do it. But, you know, before that, it was a lot of talk and a lot of whining and dining and not, you know, we had raised three million in seed funding, so it wasn't like we raised nothing, but we hadn't been able to raise that Series A yet until we actually delivered on something the marketers wanted and validated that to the investors. So. That makes sense. What would you say, let's flip that. What would you say are your two that, that you can contribute or attribute to you to, to the best bets that you made? The first was just focusing on the culture. Like we made it through some hard years with a lot of people that stuck around. And I think it was because I put a lot of time and energy into building the type of culture I would want to work for. And that I think attracted people that were like me and that would be number one. And then number two would be product focus so five-ish years ago, we were really getting pushed to build from a lot of our customers to build a end-to-end marketing automation platform that does everything. You know, if you if you use like Salesforce Marketing Cloud or Adobe's Marketing Cloud, like people were trying to push us to build a newer version of that, and it came through a natural lens. Oh, you're already we're already using Jebit to build this quiz that captures emails and captures first-party data. Could you also power my emails for me? Could you power SMS messaging for me? Could you be my data warehouse where I store all the data, like CDPs, customer data platforms, as they're called? And we were tempted by it. I remember going to the management offsite where we debated, should we build all those things? And we decided to draw a really firm line in the sand, which we've stuck to since, and we've stayed disciplined of, we're not going to build the messaging platforms. We're not going to build the data warehouses. There's enough people that have raised way more money than us, have way more workers doing that. What we are going to do is we're going to be the best in the world at the creative platform to build and capture, build these experiences that capture the data. And then we'll build all the integrations and all the partnerships. So we become the primary source of this first party declared data or zero party data as it's called to all the players in the ecosystem. All, you know, we're a partner of Salesforce, we're a partner of SAP, all those people, Clavio, Braze, a lot of the up and coming marketing clouds, Twilio. And uh, I think doing that and being laser focused and being the best in the world at that I think has paid off because especially for anyone who's listening who's in the marketing tech world, it's an incredibly crowded space and a lot of companies all sound like they do some combination of the same thing. And so that's, that's what we're focused on. That's what we've been focused on and that's what we'll keep being focused on. That's awesome. The fact that you can articulate that so, so concisely is, is nice that you've really been spending a lot of time thinking this through because it could have been very easy to just say, yeah, let's go this way or, you know, let's go that way. Let's, let's just do it all. And then you stretch and, yourself really yeah. thin and maybe, you know, you botch something on the implementation with your core group. And it's funny because we were listening to marketers a lot and we were chasing a lot of what they asked us to do for sure. But then that was an area where we decided, no, we're going to draw the line and there's probably a whole other deep conversation we could have another time about how do you know when to do what they're asking versus how do you know when to say no and I, I think for all the mistakes we made I think that was one of the right things we got did and got one of the things we nailed and uh, it's one of the things I'm more proud of. That's awesome. Tom this is awesome. I love the story, I love the success, I love the grit. Let's, uh, let's, let's wrap this up. Got one, one question for the audience to, for you to share. Favorite book, favorite resource, like what would you recommend to up and coming founders, serial entrepreneurs, anybody who's kind of going through this? What would you recommend as, as some material for them? 
Well, since you brought up the mental health culture stuff earlier, I'm going to not go a business book. I'm going to say Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. It's a good it's a good book that gets into kind of how your mind works and honestly what mindfulness and meditation is all about but I just I really like the way he talks about it. Love it. How how do we get more of you? Where can we find you? Where are you writing? Where are you where, where can we get more of Tom? I don't do a lot of writing. I'm pretty busy right now, Jevit. But uh, Tom at Jevit.com would honestly be best or or LinkedIn like I don't. Yeah. But I I don't have like a, a medium or a Twitter I use or things like that, but maybe that will happen at some point. Next business. Ne next time you yeah. get some free time. Yeah, exactly. I love it. Tom, thank you so much for coming on. One of my one of my favorites. This was an awesome conversation. We're, we're going to have to have you on in a couple of years to tell, tell, tell what, I don't know, 8.0, Jeff. Which sounds good to me. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. That's it for this week's episode of From Start to Scale. Be sure to click that subscribe button and follow us so you don't miss our next episode. I'm Alex Newman. See you next time.